This is the Financial Coconut Podcast, Singapore's first personal finance podcast network. I'm your host, Reggie, aka Your Chief Financial Coconut. Every Thursday, you'll be chilling with me and my guest, who are some of the quirkiest, geekiest people we can find on the internet about how they do money and life. So sit back, relax. It's an ongoing cycle. You're, you're, you're wanting the thing and then you're buying the thing. But if you interrupt, you interrupt that cycle, you stop at the buying part, then you can analyze the wanting part and why you want something. Mm. That's what I'm doing with this no buy or low buy. I am interrupting that thought process so that I can better understand myself. Mm. So I am stopping the car and seeing how I can like change certain things or repair certain things. Welcome to Chills with TSC, where we sit down with the geekiest, quirkiest individuals to learn about how they do money and life. I'm your host, Reggie, aka Yorochi Financial Coconut, and today we are going to bring back an old episode. Why? Because we are bringing this person back into studio after she has done her whole like no-buy, low-buy journey for the whole year, right? So we'll be recording with her sometime in December, and likelihood... Her new episode will drop in January or February, so stay tuned. And of course, this person is none other than Lisa Adulting, which is like one of the most popular YouTube channels till date, right? In in the personal finance space, she grew really, really fast. And to be fair, it's one of the most popular episodes we've ever seen on the Financial Coconut. So we are replaying her stuff today, uh, letting her spill the tea on how she manages her money in a very very honest way, right? So all that jazz is going to come in and stay tuned for the new episode to come. But meanwhile, this is Lisa Adulting on Chills with TFC. Hello, Lisa. Welcome to TFC. Hello. So Lisa, Lisa runs a channel, YouTube channel, and it's called Lisa's Adulting in Singapore. Tell us about the channel. When did you start it and why did you get started on it? Yes. Yeah, so I started my channel at the beginning of this year, towards the end of last year. So I, I, at the end of the year, I resolved to do a low-buy year, which I'll talk about in detail later. But as part of the low-buy year, I wanted a place to document my progress with it. And so I watch a lot of YouTube videos. I watch people talk about their low-buy or their no-buy project on YouTube. And so I thought, it's like two birds with one stone, right? I want to share my progress with this project. And then it was also something for me to do on the side, outside of work. Um, and yeah, so I, I started the YouTube channel... There, there were different options, right? So I could have done a blog, I could have done a YouTube channel, but it felt like a lot of the people I was watching was on YouTube and I wanted to do a bit of video editing, see what I can learn from the work of producing a video, which is why I went with YouTube. And as for the content of the channel, I meant for it to be, and I still mean for it to be, like a video journal of my journey with adulting and all the work that is involved, like from p managing personal finance to housing, what it's like to, in my case, um, live in a HDB flat and manage the HDB flat. I also wanted to go into things like mental health, some behavioral things. But so far, it's been quite a slow start. It's most My content has been quite focused on personal finance. But that is the overall plan for the channel. Mm. Yeah, the main series on my channel is The Money Diaries, which is like a month-by-month -month recap of how the low buyer is going. And I literally just tell everybody what I've bought for the month. And yeah, and also... My channel name is Adulting in Singapore, mm -hmm. right? So I thought the including that Singapore was quite important uh, because it contextualizes everything that I'm talking about. 
it's a bit clunky, like the whole ch- the channel name, Lisa, Lisa's Adulting in Singapore, but it's stuck. And when I thought about it, it's stuck. And yeah, I think for now, that is the name I want to go with. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. I mean, adulting is a, a phrase that's been talked about in recent years. And on, on your channel, we don't get to see your face. Mm, right? Yeah. So it's uh, actually... It, it does read like a blog because it's you've written the script, you know, you structure it and then you, you present it, but you, your face is behind the camera. So mm. if you're watching this on YouTube right now, this, is a, this could be the first time that Lisa <laughs> has you know, reviewed her face <laughs> on the internet and all that. So adulting in Singapore, first, how, how do you define adulting? And since we're the financial coconut, you can define it in relation to money, and of course, other aspects as well. And what are your first few steps to adulting? How do you get started in adulting? I guess if you look online, the definition is something like the assumption of tasks, responsibilities, or behaviors that you associate with what a like a mature grown-up or adult will do. For myself, if I think working backwards with your questions, mm-hmm. like how do I what are the first steps to yeah. um adulting? When did you first like, okay, I'm adulting. <laughs> now <laughs> yeah. I'm an adult and I have adult responsibilities. I think it comes with and the realization can happen at any point of your life, right? It's not really tied to an age, like when you graduate, although that's when it happens um, for most people. Mm-hmm. You come to the realization that you are responsible for your own life and for sustaining that life. And it can also come together with realizing that you might be responsible for someone else's life. Mm-hmm. It could be your parents. Um, it could be your children if you're in that stage already. So it's like understanding that you have that burden of responsibility on you and then taking steps to do the things that would help you support and sustain that life. A big part of it is knowing for yourself that you cannot really live in the blissful ignorance Mm. anymore. Mm. And I think many associate adulting with very straightforward, like financial related tasks or like knowing what phone plan to choose or understanding CPF or knowing what the heck are taxes and how much you have to pay. And these are for sure like the low hanging fruit of things that you should ideally seek to know more about, not for its own sake, but because these are things that you have to do in the context of the society that you are in. It's part of you having to be, part of you wanting to be a functional member of society in the context of the place that you live in. Um, And so this can differ from place to place. Yeah, were there any skills that you have to pick up? How how did you get started? When did you realize that? Okay, for myself, uh, I think the financial management came before the concrete realization that Mm. I have to be the adult now, and that was when I was in JC. I for the first time I got my own money through a scholarship when I was in school. So that wasn't money that I got from my parents as allowance. That was money that was mine. So that was the first time I thought okay, I have to manage this somehow. Mm. And then I was 16 at the time, which is when you can get an ATM card. So that's when I started tracking what I was spending on. And a lot of it was like food and whatever other things that I could buy online. Of course, at that time, I didn't know about investing. I didn't know about any sort of budgeting framework. All I knew was that I needed to write down what I was spending on and Mm. also how much money I had left. So that was the, the very, very foundation. And then that feeling of adulting, which is also about maturity, right? And not just about the things that you do, but your relationships with people and how you treat them and how you are around them. That maturing is part of the adulting journey, I think. So that came to me much later after I graduated when I had to start supporting my family. Mm. And I knew that 
I needed to carry myself in a certain way and make decisions in a certain way that is influenced by my circumstances and wanting to have the best possible situation for them with whatever resources we had to work with. You definitely started relatively younger. You're already tracking your expenses at the age of 16. Mm -hmm. I mean, well... I wasn't doing that for sure at 16. I was still getting pocket money, spending within it, but I, I didn't know where the money was going. So it started relatively young. And then you mentioned that as you grew up, you have to also take care of the some responsibilities at home. Could you share a bit about that? Right? And mm. could you give us an uh, idea of what that is like? When I was in my final semester, my father passed away. So he was the primary breadwinner and... Um, manager of the household in that sense. So after he passed away, I am the oldest in the family. So I took over because my mother is not educated and she's also not Singaporean. So there were a lot of things that I had to learn. The worst case scenario of, is, of course, she cannot stay in the country. So that was my perspective. Like how okay. do I keep her here with my family so that we... Can stay together can, as a family yeah. unit, right? Yeah. Um, and how... At the time, we were staying with uh, my father's sister. So in terms of having a roof of our heads, having food on the table, that wasn't really the issue immediately. Mm. And so I was kind of shielded from that also. So I, I assumed responsibility, but I think only in name with the understanding that, okay, the responsibilities maybe will come later uh, in terms of the actual work that I have to do. And it did come later. It came in 2020 when um, I made a decision to move my family out. And so from there, I, w- I had already been working for about six months I was also at the time reading a lot about personal finance. Now that I had an income, now that I had a family to support, I was wondering what what is the best way to work with what I had to support my mother. And at the time also, my brother was just finishing up his junior college. And then from there, it's just like a ongoing list of things that I am learning about Mm. and executing. So having to buy the house, that was a big thing. And I did it my I did, had to do that by myself because I was my mother couldn't buy a house, obviously. And I'm the one with the job. Mm. And then after getting the house, okay, how do I make the house livable? How do I renovate it? And then what electricity retailer do I go with? I mean, even before the house, I was reading in, I was reading up on investing and oh, what the heck are ETFs and unit trusts and where do I put my money? What is trustworthy? It's just an ongoing list of things that you move forward to learn about because with knowledge comes power to make educated and intentional decisions. So I was just absorbing everything that I could, learning everything that I could in order to live what I thought was the best life within my means right now. Mm. So the situation with your mom and the passing of a dad there's really a level up in terms of adulting. And you mentioned about a house. You spoke about it in detail in one of the videos. It's very in-depth, about 15 minutes long, if I minutes, yeah. yeah, if I do not remember wrongly. And it was, okay, the title of the video, if you want to look it up, is How I Bought a Resale HDB at 24 years old as a, as a single. So that's very impressive. And it's a very popular video. Many people clicked on it. Mm. All the details are in there. But could you give us an, an idea? so that we can get an idea of what is it about and then we can look into the video for the rest of the details. Mm. The video itself is titled How I Bought a HDB at 24 Years Old. So I mentioned it in a previous video that how I budget my 3.2k salary, mm. something like that. So a lot of people were already asking, can you make a follow-up? Like how, how the heck do you get a HDB at 24 years old? So it starts out with intriguing situation, like how because the the general belief is that unless you are thirty five years yeah, old, thirty five years yeah, old, yeah, you cannot buy a house as a, you cannot buy a HDB as a single. Um, the thing is, you can, and 
You just need to get resale, then you need capital. Uh, yeah, for, yeah. Mm-hmm. only resale and you need money. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in terms of the application process, I didn't appeal to anybody in terms of buying the house. I appealed for other things, but buying the house was not one of them. There's a whole list of schemes that determine whether or not you're eligible. And I happen to be eligible through one of the schemes. And because of course, there are going to be exceptions to the norm. And like the most common exceptions, they will have a scheme for it. Um, like if you're a, say, a divorced parent with children or you're an orphan. So for myself, it was the non-citizen family scheme where I was applying with a non-citizen parent. So yeah, so that was definitely something that was not known. And so it became an interesting situation, which I put in the title and I think that's why people clicked on it. The how of it, I covered very clearly in the video in terms and also what the, the process was for buying the house. But I think more interestingly, the why of it is also something that I covered and it's in the video. Right, you, you were forced by circumstances yeah. in a way. I think when people saw the title, it feels aspirational. Yeah, like, wow, yeah, what yeah. If, what can I do to, you know, buy a HDB at 24 yeah, years so old? I, I think I shattered that. Yeah, you said <laughs> I, that. I undercut that. And then it's like a bit and switch and you went into something deeper. Yeah. You know, instead of telling me like how like you really share your own personal situation. Mm. And my takeaway was that like, it's really personal. Like everybody's situation is different. Mm. And, and so this is what you have to go through. Yeah. As compared to someone who, you know, aspires to, you know, get a HDB at a young young age. But you were forced by circumstances. Yeah, I didn't think about it as being aspirational, actually. Mm. Like, the whole time when I was going through the process and even making the video, in my head, it was like, oh, it's a heavy story. Like, a, a lot of regret and frustration. Like, the thought of it being aspirational or inspiring came mm. a lot later after I published the video. Like, even even the, the, the thumbnail, I remember I took a picture and I put a black overlay on it so that the text can ap- appear more. But basically, it didn't look like wow, look at me, I did this. Mm, um, exactly. Because that's more of your style, actually, which is why you also don't appear in the videos. Oh, yeah, yeah. You also mentioned another video, how you live on a $3,200 monthly salary in mm. Singapore. And that, that did well too, right? Uh, that is still the best video on wow. my channel, like the in terms awesome. of viewing. Goat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the goat. <laughs> the goat of your, your channel, right? Yeah. So what, what is it about? Could you share with us, how did you live on your 3200 monthly salary? I think that's my second video on the channel. And mm. when I made that, when I made the decision to start my YouTube channel, that was one of the first videos I planned to make because it contextualizes everything, right? Like the my what's my monthly income, what I'm working with, and why is the lifestyle that I'm living now? What do you, what do you think it blew up though? Oh, why I think it blew up? So a combination of two things. Firstly, it, I think it was about February or March that it started blowing up. Like I was getting thousands of views each day. And also a lot of uh, people subscribing, which was insane because from December, end of December, when I created the channel to um, February, I think I had like 30 subscribers and a few hundred views, which already felt like a lot. Um, But when it blew up, I think is when the Singapore budget 2022 (laughs) came out. So I'm thinking with the algorithm and the keywords, because I kind of had all the keywords. I had budget, I had Singapore, I had 2022. So YouTube and Google itself was already, okay, maybe my video, time to push out now because it intersects with the Singapore budget that was coming out at the time. And then the second thing that happened was there was this really nice guy called Christopher. I don't know him personally, but there is this personal finance group by Seedly on Facebook, right? So he posted my video on there and a lot of people found me through that Facebook group. So those two things, I think, led to my video being pushed by YouTube. Yeah. Really? The, the key, you think it's the keyword? <laughs> was I think so. Budget period? I think so. Oh, yeah, I, for are real. Are you just downplaying yourself? No, for, really? It works I like mean, that. why else? Because <laughs> until February, no, nobody was looking at it. And so it just so happens. And I thought about it. Like, like it crossed Ooh. my mind. Like, do you think maybe during the budget, 
with the algorithm, YouTube will push my video okay, out. Okay, okay. Because I'm sure there are other channels that are really budget related. Yours is not even about the Singapore budget. Yeah. It's your personal budget. Just yeah. that the keyword is the same, right? Yeah, budget. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Contact location also the same. Yeah, yeah. Sing- yeah. Singapore, Singapore. Yeah. I'm okay. sure there are other mm. videos with the word budget in it, yeah. but they're not plus, blow up. Plus the Christopher sharing on Yeah, plus, plus yeah. Christopher sharing on Sydney. Mm. And okay, like, okay, if... <laughs> Maybe if we look at my content, the content of the video, I mean, people understand theory very well, right? They understand, if, like, if you read about it, you know what the 50-30-20 rule is telling you to do or advising you to do. But my video itself, I am fully transparent about where each dollar is going. Like, mm. what am I putting towards investments? What am I putting towards yeah. fixed expenses and bills? Before that, could you tell us about the 15 30 Oh, okay. Yeah. I read about it on Seedly. Mm-hmm. I don't think they came up with it, but I'm not sure. It's... A framework where you budget 50% of your salary 50. towards expenses, right. 20% to savings, I believe. Yeah, 20% to savings, which is like your immediate emergency savings, 30% to wealth. Mm. I've seen investments, it, uh, right? Wealth oh, yeah, yeah. Wealth investments, investments okay. uh, putting towards retirement or mm. any sort of long term goal that you have. I think okay. buying a house can be considered wealth. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really up to you to define... There are so many frameworks out yeah, there, yeah. but of course you have to adjust the percentages to yeah. your own scenario. Because sometimes expenses you cannot really change. Mm. So for me, I use that as a, a broad framework to think about how I should be budgeting my salary because otherwise there's like a million different ways that you can organize your finances. So just having something as broad as that can help as a starting point. Yeah, and to keep you like in that general direction or trajectory. Yeah, I've seen like 10% for contributions, 10% to parents, 10% like that kind of thing. Mm. So there are just a, a bunch of different ways. I've also heard people saying that maybe 30% to wealth is too much and that and 50% is meant to be like for fixed expenses and then 20% for whatever you want to spend on. So it's really up to you. It depends on yeah. your income as it well. It depends like on your income. 3.2K is different from 10K, yeah. 20K. Yeah. Right? yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. So for myself, that's the category, that's the framework that I go with because it's just easy to remember for mm. where I am right now. And 3.2k, I, I think it's very relatable to many Singaporeans. Mm. You know, looking at this number, because some um, YouTube channels or, or blog posts, articles, they will have like some cra- crazy figure, right? But, but your content feels relatable. Something that, you know, yeah, I, this is my situation. Yeah. Um, and to add on to that, because people don't even talk about salary to begin with. So you oh, don't it's even... It's a secret? You, you think uh, like, people don't share about it openly? Like, don't you think it's like a social thing? People don't really openly share how much they earn. Like, they say, oh, like, I'm quite well-to-do. Yeah. Or, like, I earn high high five figures, high four figures. I don't know. Like, they, they put it in all these vague terms. So, right. even mm-hmm. somebody telling you the exact numbers of their monthly income is rare, I feel. And on top of that, to so transparently share where that money is going, how that money is budgeted... Because context is very important here. Mm. Somebody earn you can earn the same as your friend. Like both of you can be earning, say, four point five k, but your material quality of life will look so different depending on your situation. Like if you're a single person living with your parents, compared to if you're like a divorced mother with two children, both of you earning four point five k, but your quality of life, your material quality of life can look so different. And so that was what I was hoping to share, like mm. my salary, but also how my, how I am working within this income to lead the life that I'm living now and you need that kind of understanding of context to have empathy and to feel an emotional connection or like a connection that you know someone else is going through the same thing as you are so that's like two sides I'm hoping to provide in this space not just transparency about numbers but also hopefully a more nuanced understanding of context Mm. yeah I think the, the context is very important 
right? Whether it's, we mentioned 3.2K or 10K, putting 50% of expenses would mean different things mm -hmm. for different people. So it's about your standard of living, your personal choices in life. And, but what do you think about this whole hmm, trend that, that we, we are not willing to really share our income? And you put your income out there openly, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, trend of not sharing income. Mm. I think there, there are also some company policies, It's not right? a trend. It's, it's, a, it's a culture. Culture, uh, yeah, yeah. culture uh, would be a better word. Yeah. A culture also um, reinforced by some company policies. I think you're not even allowed to talk about salary with your colleagues. Oh, yeah. So that one, I, I am for being open and transparent open. about mm. it. But I've heard of company policies saying you cannot discuss. Yeah. So I really don't know. I think... The, the trend now compared to last time is more transparency, more openness to talking about it. Because mm. I think it's a negotiating point also. And yeah. you know, that there was a whole thing where it was revealed that female employees are paid less and like the lack of transparency transparency and discussion around salary contributed yeah, to contributes yeah. to that um, imbalance. So I see, I, I think the younger generation is more open to speaking about it, mm. but it's not... I don't know. I guess people don't consider it polite conversation also to talk mm -hmm. about how much you earn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a quite it's quite an individual personal decision for me to just like, you know what, I don't care. Like, here's how much I earn. I, I, I see no shame in sharing it. Mm. Of course, I was, uh, I've read articles that take the, the position of openness, transparency, because it, like you say, is a negotiating factor for the companies, right? So when HR asks you, what's your previous salary and what's your expected salary? They have all the information, all the negotiating chips are on their hands. Like, you, you don't know anything. You don't know your budget. You don't know what was the previous yeah. person's salary and you're just going blind. So, and there's this talk about that as well. And of course, you mentioned about uh, women's salary in the workplace being, you know, less than the male counterparts and it's being unfair. And be that's because we don't have transparency on this whole situation. We don't have visibility on it. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's very foggy right now. So, so that's, that's one thing that we can really think about. And you, you, someone has to start, right? You put yourself out there first and you, you say this is your salary. How am I supposed to talk about my budget if I don't share my salary? I don't know. That, that was my thinking. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, that makes sense. And maybe there is a very good reason why you shouldn't be sharing your salary to others, let alone mm -hmm. online. But mm -hmm. uh, from where I am and where I was when I made that video, I'm still, I didn't see any other way. Okay, so two of your videos that blew up, one is on your monthly salary and the other one is on your HDB resale at 24 years old. How about something that you like among all these videos? Oh, um... You know, did, did something not blow up? The video is still there, but you love it so much. Like, so yeah. precious. Why no one is clicking on it? For sure, for sure. <laughs> you know, something like that. Uh, but I think it's also expectations versus reality. <laughs> okay. I mean, with the, the 3.2K video and the HDB video, I sort of knew that even beyond me, these videos would travel to a wider audience that is outside of like the core audience that maybe cares about all the videos that I make or most of the videos that I make. The only series and the longest running series on my video uh, on my channel is my money my diaries. diaries. Uh, yeah, so okay. that is the the month by month follow up on the low buy project that I am doing, right? Maybe you can go into the low buy project oh, yeah, at so, this point. Okay. Yeah. So what is low buy and what is no buy, you know? The uh, concept of it. So low buy is a variation of the no buy. So the no buy year is um, a project where you basically don't buy anything that is considered a non-necessity. Again, like definitions are all up to you here because what is a necessi necessity to you is different um, to another person. But the gist of it is that you don't buy anything that is an, that is outside of the necessity category. Um, and it could be that you, that you do a no-buy on certain categories as well. Like if you identify, say, 
clothing as your problem area that you want to do a no-buy on, you can just restrict yourself in that category. And you don't buy anything for a certain period of time. It's not a lifestyle thing. Because mm. if it's a lifestyle, then it's just your life. But it's more like a, a short-term project, I would say. It could be a month. It could be a year. And it's it's kind of like uh, committing to an exercise regime or a specific diet for a, a certain period of time. Uh, so I see good it, analogy. Yeah, yeah, I see it in that kind of way. And then the low buy is a variation of that, which means that you impose a certain restriction on yourself. So for myself, it's $50 a month on what I consider is a non-necessity. Okay. And people do it for all kinds of reasons. So it could be for something as simple as wanting to save money for that month. A lot of the times I... I see people doing the no-buy because there is something in their behavior or their mindset that they want to change. Or like a no-buy or a low-buy um, where there is a restriction on the amount or the quantity that you can buy, uh, that you can purchase, that really helps with sort of maybe resetting or helping you reevaluate some of your beliefs and attitudes towards spending. The reason why you put the brakes on spending, right, is because, like, say you're driving in a car and you think that the car is faulty. You cannot repair the car and drive at the same time. Mm. So... You gotta stop. Yeah, you gotta stop. Look for help or just help yourself. The whole emotional process from, like, wanting the thing to actually buying the thing, it's an ongoing cycle. You're, you're, You're wanting the thing and then you're buying the thing. But if you interrupt you interrupt that cycle, you stop at the buying part, then you can analyze the wanting part and why you want something, um why you think you want something. So that's what I'm doing with this no buy or low buy. I am interrupting that thought process so that I can better understand myself and um, what my motivations are without like the end result, the consequence of already having bought the thing. Mm -hmm. So I am stopping the car and seeing how I can like change certain things or repair certain things. Okay. Can I call it a detox in terms of a personal finance? Because you used the diet example just Mm -hmm. now, right? So it's change our money habits or spending habits. So essentially, it's, like I mentioned, it's not a permanent thing. It's not a, a permanent lifestyle they have to stick to, but you can try it for half a year, one year. So for yourself, it's been half a year? Yeah, and for one year. One year. So you've been updating regularly the Money Diaries on YouTube channel. What has been experienced so far? Let's sum up half a year. <laughs> half a year. Oof, it's, um... Well, it's some of my most vulnerable videos because I... Firstly, I'm sharing everything that I bought. Oh, <laughs> so now... <that's> so... <laughs> So vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm already I'm sharing that, and then also the mindset changes over the last six months. I go into depth about that. So I did a mid-year check-in, and something that has come up was me feeling quite out of place because shopping is so shopping and spending money is so normal, right? In but when I purposely take myself out of that cycle when I stop driving, it gives you a different perspective. And if you're the only one who has stopped by the side of the road, then you're kind of lonely because everyone's going on without you. And something that I realized was that I don't really know what to do when I'm not shopping or when I'm not trying to actively desire things and work towards buying the thing that I desire. So I've been trying to read more, trying to work more, but I'm not used to not having this pastime. And so that has been that has been something that I'm that I need to reflect on. Mm. Like imagine you've been a meat eater all your life and then suddenly you cut out meat. Then you're like, what do I put in my meals? Yeah, and then all yeah. your friends are meat eaters. When you go out for gatherings, they're still eating meat. Yeah. And leaving and you behind. So know, so what yeah. do you do with your time, right? Like when right. I when you're not shopping, when you're not actively participating in you're not 
no, I am still participating, mm. but at a much reduced level. You think parts of our identity, I mean, this modern society, like, mm-hmm. you know, what you spend on is so, it forms part of who you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to find how else I can reinforce my sense of identity without needing to buy the things to reinforce that identity, right? right? So without all this, who, who are you? Yeah, Do you have that thought? Yeah. Like, who am I, you know, in this process? Mm. I think that's the, that's a really valuable part of the low buy because it really puts you through this grueling process of self-reflection and self-evaluation. And it's not fun. Uh, I mean... Uh, you're still mulling over it. You're mm, still thinking about it. Yeah, There's I've, no answer. Yeah, I've never committed to this length of a mm-hmm. project before. So uh, we'll update at the end of the year what my feelings are. But right now at the six-month mark, this is where this is where I'm at. And that wasn't what you were expecting when you started, right? This, this realization that you're having right now. Uh, did it serve what you intended for in the first place when you started this low buy year? Yeah, but expecting it is not the same as going through it. Uh, so, you kind of knew a, that you, you blew know, it, intell- but... Okay, I knew intellectually that I'm going to probably go through some hardship, but um, going through it is another thing. Okay, okay. climbing uh, the mountain itself is another thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know it's going to be tiring climbing yeah, yeah, this mountain. That's right, right, that's that, right. Oh, going through it is another thing. Yeah, and a, a worry that I had was that I'll just give in. No, uh, I'm just going to give up in on public because yeah. you're doing it online. Yeah, so I think having the public YouTube channel helps. Yeah, accountability. But I am committed to the outcome, whatever it is. Like what, whatever realization I come to, the person that I become at the end of this year, I'm committed to seeing it through. Mm. It's just hard. I'm really interested in this journey of yours. I mean, it, it reminds me of a friend who quit Facebook. You know, several people have done that, right? Close their Facebook accounts. And then, but what fills up that extra time that you have? I mean, okay, social media detox. Okay, I'm using the word detox. Well, yeah, yeah, that's a really good comparison. Right, yeah, and then, so similar. so what fills up the time? Like, is it, do you, did you use something else that is the equivalent of Facebook to fill up the time? You know, if you, if you do that, you know, then, then what's the point, right? Mm. Okay, yeah, I don't really have a clear answer. I have a friend who did that and then she was like saying, oh, I just read more books. But I, I don't know, is yeah. it what she wanted when she turned off her Facebook account? It's not a one-for-one replacement, right? Uh, like you just because you quit one habit, you immediately find another habit that can stop, substitute what that previous habit was. Mm. So like reading books is not the same as scrolling social media. Okay. So I'm sure yeah. there was something else in there yeah i think this whole journey of like really another episode <laughs> it's, an episode. <laughs> it's about knowing who you are mm. i think that that's in, that that's what intrigues me and i might want to do it because of that mm. it's, it almost feel like meditation a, a form of meditation in a sense mm. that meditation well you go deeper into yourself kind of mm. who you are so this process what well, feels like you could reach that that end point yeah we'll, we'll, we'll check in with you at the end of your no, end of yeah. your review but you also have to put up all your expenses everything that you bought online for people to see right people judge you for it or how it's, yeah, how it makes you think twice about what you want to spend <gasps> on oh, yeah um, everything you spend on people will, will know yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. so far no nobody has criticized me outrightly mm-hmm. about the things that I spend on I do get um, comments like think about your necessities think about your needs but the interesting thing is I am living quite a comfortable life. Like all my my needs of survival and safety and comforts are cared for. Like I have put aside money for those for those expenses. With my so the things that I do share, I really like as in the expenses that I share um, that I make from my sinking fund. Oh no, should I define that? <laughs> the expenses that I do share that are um, the more frivolous things. They are meant to be frivolous mm, because yeah. I don't want to cut off. Um, completely uh, being able to spend my money on things that that are purely to give me joy and enjoyment. Do you recommend people try it? Low buy or no buy for let's say half a year, one year? Would I recommend people do the no buy for sure? Mm. 
at the very least, it will save you money because you are restricting spending in a certain area. Provided, of course, you are not redirecting that money elsewhere and spending more somewhere else. But the potential for behavioral and mindset shifts, I think, is the most valuable part of, of doing the No Buy project. Like being able to self-reflect and evaluate, it's, yeah, it's like starting exercise or a certain diet, but it's not necessary for like financial planning or financial management or anything. It's really like a, like a self-improvement project. That's how I see it. So you really bear it all online, at least in terms of your financials, you know, put it online for people to discuss, to comment, and you see all these YouTube comments coming in, right? So what has your experience of that been so far? Like, have your perspectives changed because of what you share and then what you commented back to you in the YouTube videos? What did you learn from that? This whole process of putting yourself out there and then yeah. you know, having people look at your finances in a spotlight. In terms of my individual personal guidelines and principles to how I manage my finances and how I think about money, it hasn't changed very much. The difference is that now I have made it public. And so previously when I was just absorbing knowledge, I was absorbing privately right, and seeing how I can implement it in my life. So now I see what people say about how I've implemented things. It's like suddenly inviting a lot of guests to your house and then having them comment on how you've decorated it. Yeah. Uh, whereas before you're just living in, right. um, by yourself and maybe inviting a couple mm. of friends in. And that you didn't sweep the floor, you know, this yeah. thing's out of place. Yeah. yeah. So that's been something to navigate. Like how much weight do I give these comments? The hardest comments are the ones that are like directed at a specific vulnerability, right? But, do you oh, have an example of uh, that? Somebody commenting how little I give my mother. That's personal. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, but I yeah, get what I mean. Like yeah. it's, it it's, hits you at a core. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's something very, very like targeted and personal. For all the negative comments that I get, I feel like I get a hundred more positive ones. That's what I try to focus on. Um, yeah, it's a lot of encouragement, a lot of empathy and connection from people. So it motivates me. Like It makes me feel happy that I shared what I shared. Your channel is a breath of fresh air to me Thank because, you. Um, you know, it's about TikTok, right? It's about quick, uh, snappy, you know, uh, headlines that capture your attention. Whereas your videos could be 50 minutes to one hour long and it really goes in depth and you really spend the time to, to go into it. So I think it's kind of different. But I'm sure you've been looking at other YouTubers or even other blogs, how they do their financial content, especially in a Singaporean context. Like, what do you think about the whole financial community in Singapore? Mm-hmm. You've been on Sydney, you've seen all those... You know, posts, what do you think? Very diverse. Um, and I don't know how much of what I've seen is representative of the actual community. Before, like back in 2020, when I first got my job and I was looking into all these personal finance blogs um, and channels. And so because of that, I started getting all, all my YouTube ads were investment Passive income. Give me five minutes then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, and, and those were very off-putting. Like, so irritating. And because they, I guess they were so irritating from the offset, I just ignored a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, but that, that all that was happening. Um, and then there was also like the very nuanced and accessible blogs like Seedly, SingSaver. So these are very helpful. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm a big fan of the Work Salary Men. Like, I really enjoy their content. All the finance Instagrams were starting and sharing these bite-sized accessible pieces of information. So it's very diverse. And it's, it's being made more accessible. So I think that's a very encouraging direction. Mm. I, w- I have to say though, the generally I think personal finance is still very male-dominated. Mm. A lot of perspectives and a lot of the people who are sharing are men. 
and it's a different lived ex- uh, lived experience. So I would love to hear more from from women mm. actually in the space. And yeah, like all the crypto bros, um, the <laughs> to and, the moon, yeah, yeah, and um, the focus on investing and passive income. All of these uh, are common patterns that I see recurring, mm. which is not very aligned with my own values and perspective. So I'm always trying to find a way, uh, find a place where I can sit comfortably and work on my own financial management outside of these voices and mm. other perspectives. Your channel is where you really share your journey. It's relatively young and new channel. It's been half a year. So how has your personal relationship with money changed or over the years? What's your relationship with money right now? My understanding of money has deepened. Um, like how money is generated, what role it plays in my life. And that deeper understanding is like positive in all the ways that you can imagine. I have better financial management. I have a sense of what is the best. I have a sense of what I think is the best thing to do with my money in my current context. I haven't asked this and I realized I have to ask because it contextualizes it. So how are you this year? I am turning 26 this year. Okay. So something that I'm still working on is like associating money's subjective, subjective worth to my sense of security and safety. Because mm. uh, there, there is like a baseline level of survival and, and sense of safety that money has to cover, right? But for, I think for a lot of us, that is already, that's already covered. Mm. There's this really good article by Lawrence Yeo called Money is the Megaphone of Identity. Mm. And he talks about money in three phases. More so to f- that.com, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so the first phase is security, I think, and then security or safety, security and then freedom and then power. So in mm. that first phase, security, the very bottom, the bottom end of that phase is of course like basic necessities, safety. But the higher end where, where security moves into freedom, that is not so much about the amount of money that you have, mm. but your, your mindset so how much savings that you think is enough to guarantee that you can preserve your lifestyle the way it is like for the next few years? And that varies from person to person. So you could have $10,000 and feel very secure. You could have $100,000 and mm. feel totally insecure. And I think that's where, that's the stage that I'm at now, um, where I want to be in a healthier mental space with money and not tie it so much to to my sense of security and survival because I know how much I depend on it. Like in my in my mind, like if I were to make a misstep, I feel like that could I I, I snowball into thinking like this could be this could, this could result in financial ruin for me. So I think I need to move into a healthier um, relationship with money and just in the psychology of it. Because mm. I have done like the best I can, and I'm still trying to do the best I can with the the technical aspects of it, so the knowledge of it. But the psychological part of it is something that I would like to work on further. Is this where people's goalposts keep changing? Like you have a certain number in order to feel secure, but once mm. you reach it, then you keep shifting it. Yeah, yeah. There's also a situation whereby we I have this conversation with a married couple, Jingles and Ying Ying, you met them. Mm. So uh, the husband is doing his PhD right now. And so before that, you, you have to discuss, right? Because you're taking a pay cut to do the PhD. Mm. And so logically, you work out the finances, they work it out and ah, it's okay, you know, they, they can get by it's they can still not compromise on their standard of living. 
but emotionally, yeah. that's the hard part, right? Because uh, Jingles will have to take a, a pay cut mm. in, in his salary. And so it, it feels, you know, like uncertain. There's the psychological aspects that's so hard to quantify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very nuanced, right? And this kind of thing, you you want to talk to people about it. Maybe talk to a therapist, talk to your friends. <laughs> because money is money. It's just dollar bills and numbers on a bank account. But how you manage it, all of that is emotional and psychological. So it's just as important. Money is money. <laughs> <laughs> how would you define yeah. money? Wow. It's just digital digits. <laughs> digits sorry, sorry. It's just n- numbers. Digits on a screen. That's yeah, how, digits uh, on a screen. Digits on a screen. Yeah. Uh, given... Uh, the way money is right now, of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Digits right. on a screen that if you don't have it, mm. you're screwed. <laughs> um, yeah, but hopefully let's not get these digits on a screen. Controlling our life. Thank Use you, it as a tool. Right. Thank you. Hey, I hope you've learned something useful today and I truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with the financial coconuts. Knowledge is that much more powerful and interesting when shared, debated, and discussed. Join our community Telegram group, follow us on our socials, sign up for our weekly newsletter. Everything is in the description. If you love us and want to help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. For more information, check out thefinancialcoconut.com. With that, have a great day ahead, stay tuned next week, and remember, personal finance can be chill, clear, and sustainable for all. What has been your best and worst investments you've made? Doesn't have to be a financial one. Something that comes to mind? I thought of a few. Oh. I'm just wondering. <laughs> we have time. Okay. Um, the first best investment, I think, was getting a laptop. So I got my first laptop in sec one. And that the entire world was, I learned through my laptop. So I think just having that device, yeah, it opened my entire world. And I still think having like a computing device is irreplaceable. Like your phone cannot replace it because Maybe it can now, I don't know. But back then, like getting a laptop was the most life-changing thing. Mm. The second thing I thought about was uh, going on an exchange semester when I was in university. Best investment. Because the returns are emotional and more to do with um, self-development and how I see myself. And it taught me a lot of independence, which has informed my life now. Yeah, two best investments. Two best investments. Uh, Worst investment. <laughs> A Time Magazine subscription in JC. <laughs> I might have one of those though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Uh, so when, when I, when I um, entered JC, there were Time Magazine salespeople in my canteen and they were just going up to students. We were, what, 16 at this time, trying to push for subscriptions of their, time mag- of their magazine for like two years. I think it's a bi-weekly. So every two weeks you get a magazine, right? And it was, I think, $200, $300. And they were just, they were trying to sell it to the parents, to the students, mm-hmm. saying that it's good for GP, uh, general paper, uh, yeah. you need to know, uh, you need, you want to keep up to date with current affairs. Yeah. So it was very much like fear-based, okay. like FOMO-based kind of um, selling. And I think I spent $200, $300 of my own money mm. was investment. Uh, and it and was I thought not a it, good investment because uh, you, you didn't benefit from it? or I did not have the time to read through the magazines for what they promised it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I thought it was it was it was quite what's the word? Um not very ethical mm. <laughs> the way they did it. I think that's our first experience of sales pitches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the 
version of give me five minutes back then. Yeah. <laughs> right? And they were like, oh, okay, I have to buy it because yeah. you said fear-based, And then right? they're yeah. like, like all your other schoolmates are buying it. Mm. Um, you know, you want you want to know what's up with the world because this will be useful for your grades, for general people. You want to know what to talk about. Mm. Yeah, but yeah. you see, these tactics are still being used today. Sure. So it works at some level. You're right. It's our first experience of yeah. <laughs> hard selling. Yeah, it's a <laughs> deeper psychological mm. level. What's one thing uh, under $100 that you think has been a game changer for you? I have a few. I thought of a few. And I tried to keep it in the $100 range because like no use giving you something that's $20, right? A hand vacuum. So if you have long hair oh, okay. and you shed a lot of hair, a hand vacuum is so useful to just clean up your space a little bit. The second thing is a Fitbit. And I know this is like, can be 170 You, you can get it at a discount. Yeah, yeah. 11-11 or whatever. You get discount. <laughs> yeah. Use all your Shopee vouchers. You mm-hmm. can get it at about the $120 range. Before I got my Fitbit, and I'm not a very sporty person, but I happen to be doing like maybe some running at the time. But now what I'm using it most for is to track my sleep. So now if I don't wear my Fitbit, how do I know how long I've slept for? So I think a Fitbit game changer uh, in terms of helping me track my sleep. And the, the next thing is a hydro flask. Sorry, this is not oh, really works. in the spirit yeah. of the question, is it? I'm just giving you things to buy. Um, yeah, yeah Doesn't fit into the low buy concept. <laughs> <laughs> you know? My yeah. listeners are thinking, no, I'm going to get this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a tumbler that, a vacuum a vacuum seal tumbler. Mm. So that it keeps your cold water cold and your hot water hot. So I got my first vacuum tumbler in 2016. And I've never switched back to a regular plastic bottle because I will never go out of the house without cold water. I will never drink room temperature water ever again. I will always just have cold water with me. It's good for the weather when yeah, it's hot. Save yeah, save money. So you don't have to, you don't have to buy drinks outside. Um, and you can put a lemon in there. And you drink more water. I don't know. Do people drink enough water nowadays? I don't think so. I don't think I would I drink the amount of water I do if I didn't have a tumbler. Well, maybe I'll end it there. <laughs> a, a good a good set of wireless earphones that you can get for hundred dollars or more, hundred dollars or less. Mm-hmm. What about you though? Because I'm curious, like what other people? Oh, uh, I've been asked before, so my my answer was a foam roller. Oh, so you, you massage on it. Yeah, it, it works very good. Is it very expensive though? No, you can get it che- for cheap at Decathlon. Oh, but you said hundred dollars, <laughs> so I thought oh, it must be. Oh, you, you, you were trying, trying to feed in the question, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, anything that under hundred dollars that has been really useful for yeah, you. There are so many. Yeah, right? you try it. You know, stretch out your muscles. Oh, <laughs> from okay, roller, okay. yeah, it works really well. One place that you learn from that you think is underrated that you want to share with our listeners. It could be a book, a website, blog, podcast. Yeah, many, many that I've learned from, and I feel okay. Like Seedly, I think. It's not even underrated, it's deservedly rated um, <laughs> because they make it so accessible and, and still educational for people. I really like the financial diet. They're more based in the US, but they do more of the psychological and sociological analysis of managing personal finance, which I think is very helpful. There is also Smart Mamat, which is a Muslim, they talk about personal finance and investing specifically in within like the Muslim context. So Sharia compliant guidelines. I don't personally follow it, but the fact that it exists as a resource for people, I think is very helpful for those who want to follow like the Islamic guidelines to investing. Mm. I think maybe that's under, maybe it's underrated. Yeah, people can find out more about it. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got our co-host for the Shari Investing episode. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh me? Oh. Yeah, could I get you on the show to, you know, talk uh... about investments? We're going to get people who, who knows about Shari Investing because I, I, I personally don't know a lot about it myself and I'm curious to find out more. But it'd be great to ha- have you come on and, you know, ask questions as well. 
And you know, we can find out more about Shari Investing together. Mm, yeah, we, yeah. we can we can take it offline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll think about all it. Right, yeah. All right. Thank you, Lisa. Oh, thank you. Thank you.